Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. GovComs is going along for the ride and we will follow the journey of this multi-year, multi-phase research project, which is called Collective Engagement for Social Purpose. It's not enough just to get individual level behaviour change if you want systemic change. And I think we can all recognise that we operate within a system, um, within institutions. And if we can't bring everyone together in order to bring about the change we wish to see, um, one, one person changing is just not enough. We need to have engagement among groups. And we wanted to do that in a really meaningful context. And we didn't want to be, I guess, tied down to any one sector. So we started to think about this notion of collective engagement towards, you know, or driving a real social purpose in society. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special podcast series for GovComs in partnership with our good friends at the University of Adelaide. Dr. Taylor Wilmot and Professor Jody Conjute are from the university's business school, and they were smart enough to convince the Australian Research Council that it was important in our rapidly changing and evolving world to understand how leaders can create movements to create public good. With the help of Taylor and Jody's wisdom and insights, GovComs is going along for the ride and we will follow the journey of this multi-year, multi-phase research project, which is called Collective Engagement for Social Purpose. Dr. Taylor Wilmot is a lecturer in marketing and a senior research fellow with an interest in how to apply evidence-based, human-centred methods and frameworks to solve wicked problems such as climate change, domestic violence and chronic disease. Her mission is to educate and empower practitioners, policymakers and citizens alike to find new ways to work together in the interests of the community. Jody Conjute is a Professor of Marketing and the Deputy Dean of Research at the University of Adelaide. Her research also focuses on social change and how we can motivate people to do the right thing. Throughout her academic career, Jody has worked with several not-for-profit organisations in areas such as homelessness, healthy ageing, domestic violence and sustainability. A podcast series supporting a research project is something new for GovComs, and I'm really looking forward to, as I say, walking alongside Taylor and Jody on their journey to understanding more about the best ways to create positive social change. And I'm delighted that they've joined me on the line now. Jody and Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on GovComs. Thank you, David, for the invitation to you know take part in this podcast series. It's, it's great to sort of share this experience with you and, and your listeners. So. Yeah, it's gonna, this is going to be great. This is going to be really, really looking forward. But look, before we get started into the research, I'd really be interested, as I know the audience will be interested, to understand a little bit more about each of you. So Jody, if I might start with you, what's the Jody Conduit story? 
Um, David, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm currently a Professor of Marketing and Deputy Dean for Research at the University of Adelaide. Um, my research has always focused on how organisations can be much more customer focused um, in the work that they do and really work together with their customers. But I actually haven't always been an academic. So I um, completed my PhD at Monash Uni in the early 2000s, but I was then really keen for a career in industry. So I left academia and was really, I guess, driven by a desire to see the research that I was doing being implemented into businesses so that I could see the impact that it was having. Um, so I worked for nearly a decade in the banking and finance sector, first in consulting and then as a market research manager for NAB. And about 10 years ago, I was drawn back to academia for almost the same reason. I wanted to really make a difference and have an impact through the research that I was doing and be able to make that difference to society. So. Um, despite my background in banking and finance, since returning to academia, I've mainly worked in areas of social purpose. So firstly, with not-for-profit organisations and social enterprise, and now more recently in the areas of sustainability and circular economy. But still with that focus on how organisations can really work together with their customers and with other stakeholders to make change and to make a difference in what they're doing. So... That back, banking and finance insight, what, was, it, was there one or two things that you brought back from that career in banking and finance to your work that is it was a sort of foundation pieces that really, you know, had a big impact on the way that you think about engagement with citizens? I think um, working in industry, David, and I don't think it's limited to banking and finance, but was a recognition that customers really aren't passive. You know, your customers want to interact with your organisation. They want to tell you about their experiences. And in many ways, they want to help make, you know, your services and their experience better um, through that, you know, through those interactions. So that was probably the, the main one that I brought back and the real shift from the time that I spent working in industry rather than just as an academic. So we'll explore that, but I think that notion of, you know, citizens not being passive, um, citizens wanting to participate, mm. citizens wanting to have their voices heard, I think is a, is a great lesson for um, those working in public policy uh, in terms of the design of policy, programs, services, regulation, but we'll come to that. Uh, Jody, thank you so much. And Taylor, um, before you were a doctor, where did your story begin? Oh, it depends how far you'd like me to go back, I think. All the way back, all the way back to the beginning because people love to know about people. They like to know because they want to understand where it is, you know, that journey, what sort of took you along along the road um, yeah, to make absolutely. the decisions that you've made. Yeah, sure. So I was actually a multi-sport athlete in high school uh, competing at regional, state and national levels uh, all throughout my schooling uh, years. And at the same time, I was quite a conscientious student who, who achieved quite well, I would say, in my academic studies. And then when I finished high school, I had planned to become a radiologist uh, until I learned how much physics would be involved in that degree. Uh, I studied physics in my senior years, and it was by far my least favourite subject. And unsurprisingly, my favourite subjects were actually health education and physical ed. I love biology as well. And so not only did I have an intrinsic interest in these subjects, but my health ed and, and biology teachers were absolutely fantastic. 
Um, my physics teacher, not so much. <laughs> so after deciding that radiology wasn't probably the career choice for me, I chose to study business and law at university. Um, I ended up dropping law after my first week and pursuing a double major business degree in economics and marketing. And both for me were okay fields of study, but I wouldn't say I was sold in, in either career at the end of my undergraduate degree. So not long after graduating, I actually received an email from one of my marketing professors asking whether I'd be interested in studying my honours. And the project was actually funded, funnily enough, by another ARC linkage project and focused on binge drinking among adolescents. And my first thought when I got this email was, this project seems really interesting, but what does it have to do with marketing? Um, and then a crash course in social marketing quickly ensued, um, and I went on to graduate first class honours and was able to also deliver some, um, you know, papers and things around how we can apply marketing to tackle wicked problems such as binge drinking uh, and, you know, drunk driving, illicit drug use, etc. And from there, I was offered a full scholarship to go on and do my PhD and I graduated quite early. I graduated at 25 with my PhD and went on to then complete a two-year postdoctoral fellowship all in this area of social marketing, which is applying marketing principles and techniques to, to social problems. And I think I can confidently say now that I have found my vocation in this area. Uh, but looking back, my favourite subjects in high school were actually those that allowed me to be curious. Uh, ask important socially oriented questions, do my own research, formulate and test hypotheses and present my conclusions based on evidence. So little did 17-year-old Taylor know at the time, but you could actually make a career out of those things. And so I can say that I absolutely love the work that I do today. Yeah. So what did you bring from that multi-sport athlete background into your approach to your career because it sounds to me that you're an uncompromising type and you weren't going to stop until you actually found the you know the area that you wanted to dedicate your career to and you won't you weren't really going to settle for second best yeah that's it i think you know competing across sports it gives you a drive and a discipline that not much else does in in my experience and i think it also teaches you how to listen to yourself and to trust your instincts, whether it's, you know, on the field or whether it's in business, being able to go inward and, and listen to, you know, whether it's what you truly want to be doing and being able to find your vocation or whether it's being able to make quick decisions under pressure, um, being able to pull them across and also combine it just with, as I said, I had an intrinsic interest in socially oriented, um, you know, issues and, and problems. So combining those two, I think, that kind of is the force. That, that I take and approach my uh, career with. Okay. Well, listen, I'm really now interested to know about how this com- how these conversations started about this project, the collective engagement for, for social purpose and, and thinking about what it is that you were, were trying to achieve. How did the conversation start? Who brought the idea to who and and what were those original insights and problems that you were focused in on that you thought was worthy of not only an application and happily a successful application, but the benefits that society was going to get from this work? 
So um, a lot to unpack there in that question, David. Yep, um, indeed, indeed. The, the project actually emerged, I guess, as a culmination of several projects that a group of us had worked on over several years. So we'd been working and doing research across several sectors, so everything from mental health care organisations to not-for-profits looking at um, homelessness, um, education sector, even um, into the wine sector. But the, the thing that all of these projects had in common were they were really focused on how organisations could better engage with their, their stakeholders, if you like, primarily their customers, but also looking at how they could better engage with the volunteers, with carers, with other businesses, all to, as I said before, you know, drive that improvement in both their products and the services that they are offering. So we were coming from that position that we spoke about, that you know, the stakeholders weren't passive recipients, that they were people that you want to engage with um, to make change, to work better with them, and to really drive that enhancement in everything that you do. So um, I guess we came together as a group with some co-authors that had been working together, and, and they're also the chief investigators on this project, and said if we you know, have the opportunity to, if you like, chart our own destiny and, and really focus on something that's meaningful, that's going to make a difference over the next four years, what would we like that to be? And so that's really where the aim of our project started to emerge from. We were thinking about, you know, how we can you know, bring people together to generate not just engagement at an individual level, but engagement really um, at a collective level where we know from work that we've done to drive change in any sector. Um, and I've got some stories for you later a little bit, David, if you like, but um, you know, we need to have engagement among groups and we wanted to do that in a really meaningful context. And we didn't want to be, I guess, tied down to any one sector. So we started to think about this notion of collective engagement towards, you know, or driving a real social purpose in society. And our discussions really took off from there. And Taylor, what was your part of, of this particular conversation and where did you join this journey of um, multi-research pro projects and programs and, and how did you fit into it? Yeah, uh, well, my addition, I suppose, to this project has only been quite recent, uh, but looking back further to that, I would say, you know, all the years that I've worked in um, numerous social and behaviour change projects, the one observation that we continually made and I think is becoming increasingly accepted in the field is that, and, and Jody touched on it earlier, is that it's not enough just to get individual level behaviour change if you want systemic change. And I think we can all recognise that we operate within a system, um, within institutions. And if we can't bring everyone together in order to bring about the change we wish to see, um, one, one person changing is just not enough. And so for me, being able to apply those learnings um, across different projects in the social change space to the work that we're doing now on collective engagement and how we can cultivate engagement at the group level, I think is, is key and something that I hope we'll be able to share findings on, um, you know, throughout the course of this project. So, Jody, th that's actually quite interesting that in, in a lot of that earlier research, as you said, that there was, you know, across not-for-profits, mental health, all sorts of different areas, 
was it was it a gap that you kept seeing that yes we're focusing on the individual but really what we need to be focusing on is is the collective was that something that just kept coming up that there was a hole and we weren't really understanding how indeed we were able to move groups of people as opposed to individuals? Absolutely. It, it was a phenomena that um, we had observed in many of our projects is people wouldn't necessarily talk about the I, they would talk about the we, and they were talking about how they were forming groups and about what the group was achieving. Um, and it became apparent that there really was this shared understanding or shared drive towards what they were trying to achieve. Um, but on the flip side, we could also see that um, you know, in other instances, we were having problems because we didn't necessarily have that group achievement. You know, the individuals or even um, organisations in a sector were perhaps almost working against each other while still trying to all achieve the same thing, just because they didn't have that alignment. So, so when you were sitting down to write the grant, because they, you know, they don't hand these things out. You actually have to be quite persuasive yep. and and bring quite a bit of evidence to the table to identify not only the problem uh, statement, but also you know theories around it and 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 what more you need to be done. When when you wrote that down, what areas were you really focusing in on that needed this further requirement? So in terms of this examination of how groups behave. What was in your application that really you feel convinced the assessors that this was a worthy uh, investment of taxpayers' money? Yeah, um, David, we tackled the the application from two perspectives. Obviously, there needs to be an academic contribution and, and there we drew a lot from the literature on engagement and showing how we could make a contribution looking at the concept of collective engagement. But I think what really sold our application was our focus around social impact and social purpose. Um, we had highlighted an analysis that was undertaken previously um, by PwC in partnership with the Centre for Social Impact. And in that report, they showed that Australia spends more than half a trillion dollars on social purpose sector each year, so about 32% of our GDP. Now, traditionally, a lot of this is left just for not-for-profit organisations or social enterprises to really focus on, while traditional corporations would have that focus on the, the bottom line or their share to um, return to shareholders. But we also know that you know, there's a strong movement at the moment with companies looking at their ESG credentials. Um, and so this balance of who's going to be addressing social impact and, and social purpose is changing. So we know that it's something that many organisations are interested in. So this is really where you know, our research can come in. You know, we talked about not only the potential social benefit, but also the potential economic and commercial benefits that would result from our research. And you know, a key recommendation of the PwC report was that we needed new approaches to the market and, and system design that would encourage all organisations to play that greater role in addressing social purpose. Um, you know, and this would ensure scalability you know, and, and greater societal impact from the work that organisations were doing. So for us, it was, you know, yes, it's about the, the theory that we're generating and our understanding, but it's actually about the impact that we you know, expect that this knowledge will help us to achieve. 
So, Taylor, from your point of view as being part of the team, you get the good news. It comes through. Obviously, everyone gets very excited and this is going to be great. But what's your first thought and what's your first act? What are you now having to do as you start to assemble this collective engagement for social purpose project? Yeah, that's a great question. I wasn't uh, actually around when this, you know, the news of the grant had come through. I joined shortly after, but I would say when I joined the project, we kind of hit the ground running in terms of reaching out to leaders, managers, consultants uh, who did have experience with bringing groups or teams together to tackle a social purpose. And for me, any kind of start of a research project does start with that listening and learning phase and and ideally, you know, being able to sit down and conduct interviews with leaders to learn what their experience is and and has been was the starting point for me and for that, I guess, for my role in the project. Um, And, you know, just, I guess, to echo what Jody was saying, I think more and more businesses are recognising that social purpose is not only something to be doing as a responsible business decision, but it's kind of an innovation imperative as, you know, we consider resource scarcity and, and, you know, increasingly things like climate change. I think if businesses don't make that shift, um, they'll be left behind. And, you know, that's been echoed in the conversations that I've so far had in the interviews that we've done as part of the project. So what other insights have you been able to gather so far uh, around uh, the, in this discovery phase? What are some of the other standout things that you've identified that are going to require further examination? Yeah, so I think in a nutshell, there's a new paradigm coming through, which is that businesses, uh, you know, are no longer or should no longer be considered just a company and more as an institution that's really integrated into the social fabric of society. And in order to to kind of get that integration, you do need clarity and purpose uh, and a clear mission. And that's, you know, the leaders that we've spoke to have said how important it is to have agendas aligned and to have that one overall goal uh, that you're striving to achieve. And if, if you don't have that and if you have disparate agendas, then, then you won't be able to get the groundswell and momentum that you're after in order to, you know, pursue a social purpose. And I think, you know, related to having clarity and purpose is, is values alignment and, and that's internally within within the organisation, but externally as well. You know, if we consider an organisation as an institution or even an ecosystem, you've got customers, stakeholders, communities, business partners, employees, and they all have an enormous impact, not only, you know, on the company's brand, growth, profitability, but in how they kind of, you know, communicate and interact with, with that um, ecosystem. So, I think having that values alignment between all of those different actors within a system is kind of critical. Um, and then from there, I think it's recognising different roles within, um, you know, a group level engagement and the importance of having strong leadership. Um, Jody, did you want to add some further insights from Jody's done a few of the interviews with me as well? So I'm sure you have a few more key insights to share as well. Yeah, it's interesting, David. There's many, you know, different facets to this that are emerging and and one that really interests me is just the role of even social connections and emotions that are really important in bringing the group together. You know, people will talk about, you know, 
their, their level of trust and their real belief and their um, emotional connection to the social purpose that they're pursuing. And you know, we're really investigating the role that you know, these aspects play as, as well as really the, the rational and logical reasons behind why people will pursue that social purpose. Um, and another one is, you know, the, the sense of ownership that people are bringing towards, um, you know, driving. And, you know, Taylor talked about, you know, the importance of values, but that leadership isn't just coming from one or two people. There's, you know, many people that become champions and, and take on you know, different roles for, you know, leadership and, and are really owning and wanting to address the problem. So there's some of these things that over the course of our interviews and we're just starting to... You know, start our analysis now that we'll be unpacking and, and you know, hoping to share with you over time. Excellent. So as this new paradigm emerges, and it's you've articulated it very, very clearly about where this shift is taking place and, and what the you know, hopefully the benefits will be as organisations adapt uh, to this new paradigm, what role does government play uh, and what sort of feedback are you getting when you're talking to these organisations about the role of government as this new paradigm emerges? Because perhaps in some ways, uh, maybe the private sector is starting to get into the business that government has traditionally been involved in. Jody, I'll put that to you first and then Taylor, if you could uh, respond as well. I think government plays a really important role and I think one of its primary role is a facilitating one. Governments are often in the position to be able to bring these groups together in the first place um, and to really be able to not just even financially but give people the support to, you know, enact change. Um, so we are seeing a bit of that, especially I mentioned before, I'm doing some work in the sustainability sector and, you know, um, government organisation that I'm working with, you know, will bring people together in terms of workshops or events and, and really help drive the the dialogue and drive the need for change. And then it's, you know, showing that initiative and support brings groups together to then enact and empowers them to um, make that difference. And Taylor, your views on, on the role of government in this new paradigm? Yeah, I, I, I would echo what Jody has said. I think government really is an enabler, a facilitator of change. But I think more than that, uh, it's you know when we get movements um, happening that are, that have become bottom up movements. Ultimately, you do need someone to come in and provide some level of structure and organisation, and for real change to happen. Um, in the long term, you really do need the government to, to take ownership and shared responsibility when these movements are, you know, coming together, making noise and saying something needs to change. Governments also need to follow suit uh, in order to provide that, you know, supportive environment for individuals and groups to be able to, um, you know, drive change in communities. Jody, back to you. How, how well or... Uh, how yeah, well prepared uh, in the thinking of government is it to take on this new role, this convening role, or does it still feel it has to take responsibility um, for the solutions? Um, I do think that government is tackling things from, you know, different perspectives. Um, you know, they do play a role still in implementing regulation where it's needed. Um, but I think this facilitating role 
is becoming larger. And I, I do think they're aware of that. If I can share an example with you, David, it's maybe not quite a sexy one, um, <laughs> but working with um, green industries, one of the things that um, we were contemplating is how food waste is treated in remote and regional areas. And the problem is that, you know, many people know that they shouldn't waste food, but they don't necessarily recycle it properly and put it directly um, in their composting bin. Instead, it often will go into landfill bins. Um, what happens is if people can put their food waste into the um, green bin, if you like, or the organic bin, it from there it can be composted. But in remote and regional areas, they don't always have the facilities for composting. Um, and the business case for investing is difficult because there's you know, not necessarily enough food waste for the composters to, you know, to make money. And so you actually need to tackle this problem um, at two levels. You need to, you know, government perhaps drive the infrastructure support, but you also need to get the behaviour change for it to be able to be sustained. And this is what I like about this project. You know, government can play a role in bringing together you know, um, community initiatives or communications such as, you know, GovComs to get the word out to sort of help drive behaviour change. But it can also bring the businesses to put the infrastructure in place and perhaps, you know, provide the support around that as well. And, and this is where we really talk about, you know, the collective engagement of getting all the different players in the market to come together to solve a, you know, a problem like, you know, waste we don't need the, you know, waste to be going in the wrong place or, you know, trucking it around the country to deal with it. So. And Taylor, your views, how optimistic are you that government can play this convening role, this sort of lighter touch collaborative uh, role in, in, in finding these solutions inside this new paradigm? Yeah, I would say reasonably optimistic, but I also know <laughs> that, um, you know, governments operate on their own, you know, cycle uh, and budget, and that obviously will impact the extent to which they can play that facilitating role. And, you know, there will be disruptions in, in, in progress that has been made as new governments are elected and, and kind of come on board. So that would be my hesitation is, um, you know, that will obviously cause quite a significant disruption to plans and agendas that are being put in place. Uh, I would also say, you know, I think governments are increasingly recognising the importance of citizen-led action. Uh, and you can increasingly see um, governments reaching out, you know, whether it's youth engagement or youth advisory councils to up-and-coming generations and kind of giving them a voice. And I think, you know, demonstrating that um, and, and bringing young people into the conversation gives me a level of optimism to say that I think, you know, the paradigm shift is occurring at that, you know, federal kind of government level where um, we're engaging with citizens and recognising they have a role to play in the change and the policies that are being making, yeah, that are, that are being made at that level. Jody, we're in the middle of this, well, we're not in the middle of it, we might even just be at the, you know, at the real beginning because... I don't think we fundamentally understand what change is actually coming our way when quantum computing takes place and multi-sensor environments and we go from 5G to 6G to 7G to whatever G after that. Uh, what's the impact of this transformation that we're seeing in terms of that communications infrastructure and the impact on behaviour, the role of mobility, the importance of... Um, phones and the primacy of that. Where does that fit 
um, into your examination as to how do you sort of, I don't know, grab the tiger by the tail, so to speak, to understand this ever-evolving behaviour that's going to emerge from this ever sort of accelerating uh, digital transformation? Um Big question. I think digital transformation. (laughs) I'd like the answer, please, because I have got no idea how. Because it's it is so fascinating. I I find is it. I was talking to somebody about this over over the weekend and and the role of TikTok as Mm. an influence. And you know, go back twelve months ago, you'd never have picked that it would have arrived where it is to have the the role that it plays now in terms of the impact, and that's just 12 months ago. And yep. and that's just one one platform um, that's been able to, you know, establish itself and therefore have a big influence on behaviour and other things. So I'd be really fascinated to know how you how do you build that sort of um, uh, adaptability into your thinking and into your analysis, knowing that the change is, is going to be ever-present. Yep. I think, um, I mean... There's many aspects to this, but one aspect I think is the social, the ability to build those social connections among like-minded people. If we are looking at, you know, driving social change, you know, as we've said, you know, having one individual trying to make a difference in their own community, you could often feel like you were, you know, a lone voice or a lone soldier, and you know, as you said, you know, platforms like, you know, whether it be TikTok or whether that be you know, Instagram or Snapchat, it's you know, allowing you to connect in with groups of people, not just that are geographically dispersed um, to tackle some of these problems. It also therefore allows us to have greater reach among those people with our communications as well. Um, but there's also other aspects where we can also be looking at getting real-time data around, you know, people's actual behaviours. If we're looking to drive behaviour change, you know, the um, critical aspect is actually understanding those behaviours and, you know, um, a lot of the technology that we have now helps us to understand that, you know, um, in much more detail. And, Taylor, your views, what are your views around, uh, you know, the changing environment, that changing communications layer that sits on top of this digital transformation. What what are your views on on how how you how you assess and analyse that as you look towards establishing some enduring principles around collective engagement for social purpose? Yeah, I think uh, you know communication when we're looking at the digital age can now transcend geographical borders and conversations can be had between and across different groups that may never have happened without um, you know technology playing a conduit between different people from different backgrounds and experiences and you know I guess, I guess to give you a contemporary example um, we know the discourse that's currently happening over in the US in regards to Roe and Wade and, the, and you know the abortion laws over in the US and if you just open, you know, your smartphone or your tablet, uh, the news coverage on social media around what is a really pressing social justice and equality issue for women is just astonishing. And I think the momentum that is around that is a, is a great example of um, the role of technology. You know, it's not a conversation just for the US. It's an international conversation around women's rights and, and choice. And I think 
if we can leverage that for the greater good um, and allow people to come together to drive change, you know, for me, um, the possibilities of where we could go in the future are limitless. And and Jody, the, the you mentioned it before. It's it's that emotion piece, isn't it? And these these basic fundamental principles that universal principles where people can connect and understand that sort of sits at the heart of great movements, doesn't it? That accessibility through universality that I know I intuitively understand and therefore I can move. Uh, you know, I'm, there might be all of the stats and facts and reasons and everything else, but ultimately it's that emotional piece and marketing, obviously, you know, we're sort of circling back to marketing now, aren't we? Because that's the the job of marketers is to really create that, you know, emotional engagement that leads the, to the behaviour that ultimately leads to, uh, you know, whatever it is that objective is that you, you're seeking to achieve. Absolutely. And, you know, in the research that we've done, we talk about engagement in terms of cognitive engagement, emotional engagement behavioural engagement and at times social engagement and you know through many of our studies even at an individual level we've found that emotional engagement can be the biggest driver of you know the, the desired outcomes that we're looking for. Um, when we're starting to look at this at a collective sort of movement level if you like the the emotional bonds and the emotional connections we we're finding is what really helps to form the group so we're finding that that um, role of emotions is almost having two effects I think one it's actually connecting people through to the social purpose and the the cause but it's also um, we're finding emotional contagion if you like among the those people in the group and and how they connect with each other so I think emotions um, you know when it comes to driving social purpose and social change is you know can't be underestimated well we could talk forever I think there is so much to go on with here uh, and I want to let you two get back to work actually because I really want to know what's what's next I don't want to take up too much more of your valuable time and I am really fascinated as to when we talk again, uh, you know, now that you have you finished that first phase, Taylor, have you have you spoken to everyone who you are going to speak to? Have you read everything that you're going to read, or just about where are you up to at the moment with your work? Yeah, so I, we've spoken to quite a few people. So we've had 31 interviews so far, but we're hoping to um, speak to at least 40 uh, managers and consultants and leaders who do have that direct experience of bringing groups and teams together to work towards a social purpose. So once we, um, you know, have time to sit down and analyse those interview transcripts from there, we're hoping to be able to, you know, d deliver those key insights in a digestible form um, and share that in some industry engagement workshops later in the year. Um, and then from there, I guess, we'll be also looking at how can we analyse and measure collective engagement and developing some tools and frameworks around that, uh, you know, over the next six to 12 months. So, Jody, from your point of view, what if you sort of six months' time, the world's changed, the world moves on, the world is continuing to evolve? How do you, how do you bring that into the work that you're doing? Or are you just looking for those enduring principles that are going to uh, stay true no matter what that, in, uh, you know, external enabling environment might look like? 
Um, I like to think that we're at the cutting edge, David. So yes, you know, as things evolve, you know, we will um, be capturing that as well. But I think many of the things that we are seeing are enduring. Um, you know, we are hoping to come out of this both um, some frameworks, as Taylor mentioned, that will give people some, you know, guidelines and frameworks into how to, you know, really drive engagement or collective engagement for their own purpose. But we're also looking at developing some measurement tools so that they can do some, you know, self-analysis, um, if you like, and some self-interventions um, to really look at how they're performing, you know, and look at which areas they can improve to drive their collective engagement. You're teasing me now, Jody. You're talking <laughs> frameworks, measurement. Oh, yep. gosh, this is going to be good. This is going to be so good as we go through this particular process. So before we sort of leave part one of this series, because as I say, we are walking alongside you as you um, go through this very important, uh, compelling uh, market research uh program or wider research program, is there anything um, that the audience needs to know now as we say goodbye ahead of talking again? Jody, I'll throw to you first. Um, what would you like to say What that hasn't already perhaps been said in this very first podcast? Um, I think, David, what we are seeing is that there is you know, a lot of people out there doing real um, social good in the work that they're doing. And I think that's been a, a lasting impression for both, well, I'll speak for Taylor, but for, for our group is the number of people that are really driving social purpose and doing it well. Um, and we do know that a number of these businesses do have challenges, um, but in you know exploring those challenges, you know we can help and work alongside them to look at how they can even have more impact from what they're doing. So... Um, I think they're probably my last words would be to, you know, to keep up the good work that everybody's doing and um, know that it is making a difference because we're hearing some absolutely, you know, fantastic stories about the, the social impact and social good that's happening within Australia and, and globally. Excellent. And Taylor, closing words from you? Yeah, echoing what Jody said, I think it's the power of bringing humans together and I, you know, I think... For real change to happen, we need collective action. For collective action, we need collective engagement. Um, and, you know, the more conversations that we have and learn from each other uh, become stronger, the closer we'll get to better unpacking and understanding what, what that engagement is at the group level. And I would say to listeners, if you do have your own stories of bringing people together, a group together, please do reach out to Jody or myself. We would love to hear from you. Um, and, you know, we would love to get your experiences with that and what, you know, whether they're wins, successes or failures, we want to hear it all and we want to learn so that we can help others get stronger at what they're doing as well. Excellent. So what we'll do is make sure that we, in the show notes to this program, that we uh, put your contact details up there so people can reach out uh, from the audience and, yeah, as you say, to share their stories, to share their experiences. So uh, this uh, outcome of the collective engagement for social purpose is a richer, uh, more valuable piece of work, but I'm sure it will be. Um, it certainly promises a lot. So that is fantastic. So Dr. Taylor Wilmot and Professor Jody Conjit, thank you so much from the University of Adelaide's Business School. Thank you so much for joining us today in the first of this uh, podcast series about 
the Australian Research Council Pro Project, Collective Engagement for Social Purpose. We will be back sometime in the future, not sure when, with episode two. We will actually uh, get Jody and Taylor and put them on the grill for when we actually want to be have them back uh, and we'll make sure that we publicise that so people don't miss uh, what has happened in this next exciting instalment of this research project. So a big thanks to Dr Taylor Wilmot and Professor Jody Conchit and a big thanks as always to you, the audience, for coming back once again. So much exciting stuff going on in the world of government communications. We have spoken many times now about the OECD research uh, into public sector communication, and I would encourage you to go and have a, a look and a read of that particular project because this work that's being done by the University of Adelaide around collective engagement for social purpose sits neatly into the gaps um, that we know that there are. And so this, this work is certainly going to lead to, you know, greater capability um, for government certainly to step into, as Taylor said, this new paradigm and to, as Jody said, this, you know, take up this convening power that government has in order to solve many of the uh, wicked problems that face our communities around the world. But anyway, exciting times. So thank you, audience, for coming back once again. Uh, thanks to Olivia and uh, Ben Curry here at the content group who helped put this program together every fortnight. Very delighted with the uh, work that they continue to do. Uh, we'll be back at the same time in two weeks. And if you do get a chance for a review or if you do see any of the social media promotion for this episode, please pass it along, share it, send it about. Uh, helps the program to be found, helps more people to listen into what we're doing. And again, it uh, just helps everything um, to be better promoted. So if you could do that for me, I would be very grateful. But uh, I'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another episode of GovComs. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.